The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Join me there is Shazad Kazi of China Beige Book. So, Shazad, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? I've got involved in food in looking at China and what are you doing at China Beach? Yeah, happy to. Thanks for having me on, first of all, uh, Michael. You know, as you said, my name is Shazad Kazi. I'm the managing director as well as the chief operating officer of China Basebrook. I've been involved with CB for almost about 11 years at this point. My background was in doing surveys and polls, that sort of thing in various developing markets, frontier markets. For a while there, I was working almost exclusively in, you know, countries that had gone through war or were going through civil strife and internal conflict. So, you know, working in quote unquote difficult markets is my particular area of expertise. And that kind of brought me to the world of business polling at large and ultimately brought me towards China Beige Book. So that's kind of my, that's kind of my professional background. Happy to obviously share more with the audience to give them more color. When you talk about difficult markets, how difficult is China compared to the rest of the world in terms of what actually is happening on the ground versus the way people think of it? Yeah, you know, the China market is different uh, when we talk, when we think of hard to survey populations and markets, obviously. The biggest problem I think that we, that ends up happening in the China context is everybody more or less understands that, look, China data are not always reliable when the God, the government, the government puts out. They're certainly almost always filtered through Beijing's political lens. Yet, because people either are not familiar or unsure how to go about doing this, you know, they say, look, there's no other way to figure out what's going on in China. So you just sort of have to, you know, traditionally the idea is when you just kind of have to rely on whatever the government puts out. As we, of course, know, uh, you know, all the major investment banks. Now, all the major research shops of that nature, the South Side, certainly relies on Chinese government data almost exclusively in putting together their reports, their forecasts, and their market calls. So I think, you know, that's been a big problem because do, having done this well over a decade, I can tell you that when you track the Chinese economy, you know, you know using your own private numbers, you really get to the truth in a very different way. And you start to figure out that the mainstream ideas and the consensus viewpoints that often emerge from the, on the basis of official data are wildly misleading and wrong. So it's been kind of a fascinating journey over the last decade, uh, having been ahead of the curve repeatedly because we rely on our own large-scale proprietary data. Now, the other part of this, of course, is that there's a disconnect between the growth, the narrative, 
what's being said, what's not being said. And then, of course, the ultimate arbiter of everything, which is stock price when it comes to investing in China. How do you think about the sort of disconnect between the two? And does some of the work that you've done with China Beige Book and the surveys, is there anything that would suggest that there's some degree of predictive power as it comes to certain sector or industry investing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it goes, it cuts both ways in the sense that, you know, you get very important signals in terms of both when to invest and when to, of course, you know, risk on, risk off, that sort of a thing, right? So, you know, there have been times where you'll start to see in the numbers, there's clear strength that is beginning to build up whether within the consumer base, for example, or that the factory side of the of the economy is doing better than is understood in, in other data that the market may be looking at, and that it is actually a good time to to you know to to expand exposure to China. Conversely, of course, what has been a little bit more true over the last few years, the data has very important signals about impending weakness in numbers, and you know, and you know, showcase the fact that. Perhaps market has been a little too ebullient on the China growth story or the China recovery story, whether it be back in 2020 through 2021 or what we're, what we've dealt with in 2023. So, you know, that's been one of the core reasons, you know, why we're so confident in what we see, because I think we've been able to kind of guide our clients very clearly in, in these important times of the business cycle is absolutely on the cusp of return and we're picking it up. Cusp of journey in a. Positive way or negative way? Well, currently, if you're, you know, we, we can, we, I'm happy to kind of get back into, get into some of the details. So let me, if you don't mind, let's kind of just, you know, pull back for a second to talk about 2023 as a great example. You know, when zero COVID was uh, lifted in China, obviously it ha- happened more or less out of nowhere. As you know, everybody turned incredibly bullish on the China story. Every major bank, Goldman, Morgan, the rest, you know, said, look, it's the uh, growth's not going to rip. And, you know, you're going to have, you know, well over 6% GDP growth and consumers are going to come out. There's going to be a wave of revenge spending. Chinese households have been sitting up on this big pile of savings over the last couple of years. And they're desperate to go out there and spend it in everything from tourism to luxury goods to, uh, you know, car purchases. Everything's going to lift off and it's going to happen right away and it's going to be a sustained rally. We came back and we said, look, you know, first of all, it's not going to happen right away. You know, Chinese households are traditionally more inclined to save than they are to spend. More importantly, you know, the economy is going to take a while to get activated. The economy is in a deep hole. The labor market is pretty weak. And keep in mind that this mountain of savings, regardless of what the actual numbers on those might look like, you know, this is by and large the result of people not being able to invest their capital because of what has happened in property, whether the property market's been destroyed. And by the way, also keep in mind that Beijing has just spent a couple of years absolutely demolishing people's, you know, wealth by, because of what has been done to the property market, which means that people will be clinging on to their savings, I think, a lot more dearly than you imagine. And that, you know, do not expect this wave, therefore, of revenge spending to kick off the way it did in America. It's not the right lens with which to view what's going to happen in China. That growth is going to take a while to return. The economy is going to recover, but recover slowly. And it's only by the time you get to the second quarter that you will probably more see more convincing signs of economic activity picking up. So, you know, we were incredibly bearish compared to everybody and anybody who had a view on China that was listened to. 
Of course, markets were not. Markets, as you know, peaked around January. Uh, you know, there was a crazy amounts of buying that was happening in Chinese equities. But then when the official numbers also did not add up to that, the surge in revenge spending and big economic rebound thesis, then we, of course, saw markets getting nervous month after month, maybe one of the worst, I believe, the biggest sell-off took place last month. And we, and we know, of course, how radically different the view is today in markets than where it was in January. So, so it's those sorts of things, you know, and, and of course, along the way, the data were showing what we said they would, which is a key part here. The data were showing that consumer spending wasn't coming back that strongly. The data were showing a mixed recovery in uh, property and so on and so forth. And that outside of certain pockets of, you know, few births and travel and the dining out component looking strong, consumer spending was not bad, but it was nowhere near that month after month of revenge spending that was being forecasted and on the basis of which you had this very bullish outlook on China. So it's a long-winded answer that I just gave you, but that's the kind of stuff, you know, that the data have been incredibly important in. Yeah, I also suspect that there was almost a, um, it was almost an easy narrative and because of home bias, everyone assumed that, you know, the experience of the U.S. with the reopening would be what China goes through. But your point about the property market as this big differentiator is a, is an important one. And on that and where are we on China's real estate market? I mean, we all know the stories about the ghost cities and we know that there's been a lot of hemorrhage there, but are things starting to stabilize? And how does that factor into China consumer spending habits? Yeah, the property market, you know, by comparison to, you know, a couple of years ago when really the destruction began and even compared to last year in, in some pockets is starting to look better. So what I would say is that is the property market recovering? Yes, the numbers suggest there's some amounts of recovery taking place. Is this a very positive story? Absolutely not. Is this a straightforward linear recovery story? Absolutely not. What you're getting in the property market is the seesaw sort of a thing where, you know, you're getting a month where sales are looking like they're picking up. They're picking up maybe compared to last year, but they're also they're picking up compared to the year before, but they're oftentimes they're also picking up compared to the previous month. So sequential improvement is kind of what everybody should be after right now. But price, there's price weakness. Then, for example, what happened in May, you get a reversal. You get prices start to look good, but sales slow down. My view is that this is what you're going to get in the property market, not just this year, but in probably the next several years to come. It's going to be a very very uneven recovery. Uh, you know, you may see some months and, and maybe even some quarters of the housing market look like, it looks like it's beginning to stabilize and improve. But at the same time, the commercial property side of the story is not holding up. You may see that story flip. So it's going to be a pretty, I think, messy recovery. The more important thing is for people, for investors to understand that the property market that everybody was used to uh, over the last decade is gone and it's not coming back. That's the more important story here. You're not getting property as that big driver, or, you know, driving almost what, 25% of GDP growth. That's not going to happen. That is intentional. And the idea is to help the sector recover and stabilize eventually. But to, but it's being re- it's been this massive restructuring that's essentially going on. It's going to take years to play out. And presumably that's going to have a longer term a negative effect on just in general, the idea of China re-leveraging and then what that means for, you know, commodity demand and global activity. That's exactly right. I mean, the construction boom uh, that we saw post-financial crisis, whether it was on the infrastructure side or, of course, on the uh, com- on the real estate side, which led to things like the 
creation of ghost cities and so forth and overbuilding and overcapacity. That, of course, drove global commodities. And that era is certainly behind us. You know, Beijing is very seriously trying to change its growth playbook. As a matter of fact, I would say that from a planning perspective, looking at perspective of uh, how do you think about economic planning and development in a country, they've already made the decision that old playbook that we utilize, especially post-coast GFC, which was, you know, ramping up a credit to firms so that and ramping up investment, getting that high growth being juiced by building, building. And even though it came at the expense of, you know, serious amounts of leverage and a lot of bad loans, they're done with that. They're wanting to move away from it. They realize that it's run out of road. They can't rely on it any longer. So that has very serious implications for a lot of commodity export companies, metals. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. And so forth. So about how different industries within China are looking from the kind of work that you're doing yeah, I think a lot of the focus is always on the consumer spending side, but are there different sectors behaving in very different ways? And obviously in the States, the big sector differential is tech versus everything else, right, this year. But are there similar dynamics in terms of kind of winner-take-all sectors that are just really diverging from a fundamental perspective? You know, right now, what I would say is if you looked at what's happening in the latest numbers in our data, some interesting things are going on. We've talked about the consumer side a little bit. The consumer side was okay, but not amazing compared to expectations earlier in the year. The one important thing that we are seeing on that, by the way, at least through May, and I will see if it holds up over June and July, was this broadening out of consumer spending activity, where we did see it expand into, you know, uh, better numbers in retailing and goods, you know, auto sales picking up, luxury goods coming back furniture and appliances doing well. So, uh, you know, you've got that part of the consumption side uh, starting to do better. The other thing we are noticing in our numbers, and uh, this is also true from the private PMI uh, that came out last week, I believe, is that manufacturing is actually still, at least through May, it held up a lot better than, than I think even we expected it to. You know, uh, the, the signs for manufacturing still don't look good. I you know, the fact that we've got, you know, PMIs in a six or seven month contraction in Europe and it's almost similar in the United States. That's, those are pretty serious headwinds for the sector. But so far, manufacturing has managed to hold up. And so when you think about Chinese growth this year and it, and the contribution of manufacturing, first half of the year done better than, than perhaps it would have. So I think those are some interesting trends that are taking place. But, you know, there, there isn't you know, a story in China that wasn't true last year for obviously the zero COVID policy reasons and so forth. I don't think it's going to be true this year really either, where you're going to have this winner-take-all type of thing. It really used to be that manufacturing used to be your winner-take-all type of sector. And when manufacturing didn't do well, other parts of the economy would kind of struggle. 
but you don't have that story anymore. You don't have that leader, the growth driver. Any one sector is the growth driver story anymore, which of course has very serious implications for Chinese economy in the long run. Just a reminder, if anybody wants to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left bike request button. You know, always happy to bring, uh, bring you up here. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the framing of this kind of AI war, which either we've already been in or are starting to accelerate, however you want to frame it. But I have to assume that China has probably been a lot more advanced on the artificial intelligence efficiency front than than the U.S. Any interesting kind of insights on how China is either responding or not responding to all the hype around AI that we've seen the last month and a half here in, in the West? You know, I think this is a this is one of those stories where my presumption would be that Chinese policymakers are very closely scrutinizing where the technology is today, what its use can be from advancing the, you know, the Chinese state militarily and, of course, economically. But at the same time, you know, again, and this is, you know, I want to flag this. This is not data talking. This is my understanding of the country and, you know, and my personal opinion that, you know, I would assume that there's probably going to be emerging regulatory action and policies around this beyond what we've already seen. Right. I mean, AI is this new tool and this new technology that we're all very interested by, but we're at such an early stage of understanding its power and what it can and cannot accomplish. So, so, uh, but my guess again is that we're going to hear more about its allowed usage, at least, uh, you know, among Chinese companies and foreign companies operating in China in the coming, you know, months, you know, years and so forth. But there really isn't anything. I think from a fundamental what's happening on the ground, on the economy angle, on it just as yet. Somewhat um, currency movement for a bit here. Honestly, the dollar had been quite strong last year, a little bit of a rebound the last yeah, month and a half, and you know, unclear if the Fed ends up pausing uh, what happens next. I suspect the dollar after this period of strength and maybe some kind of risk-off reaction would then really start a nasty decline. and ease pressures on foreign dollar-dominated assets, but uh, debts rather. But historically, what what have you noticed when it comes to dollar movement and the Chinese economy? I think a lot of people assume that there's a pretty strong relationship, but that may not necessarily be true. I mean, you know, there, there's, of course, a strong relationship in the sense of what it does to Chinese exports, right? That's kind of where it comes up. Keeping, you know, keeping the you know, weaker Chinese on versus the dollar, has kind of always been the goal, which is why obviously it's a tightly managed currency anyway, but which is why it's, you know, it is certainly pegged to the dollar and movement against the dollar is the only thing that more or less defines where the yuan's going to go. So I, you know, the question remains, you know, what happens ultimately once the, well, first of all, we'll see, we've got probably a hawkish skip ahead of us, not a pause. And. We'll see where this ends. And then when, when, when obviously we stay higher for longer, which means that some of these changes to the dollar, you know, we may not necessarily see this happening anytime soon. But the question obviously will remain, what do we see coming out of the PBOC in China, especially as headwinds build and Western demand continues to weaken as it's expected to, if it does. What that means in terms of currency movements of the US, that, you know, the impact again on Chinese exports can be minimized. That's the angle with which I would, I, you know, I would sort of think about it again if we're talking about the real economy and the impact of the dollar. Right. And then, of course, relates uh, then ties into the kind of 
broader discussion around deglobalization and onshoring. I, I will, I've been very skeptical of a lot of these narratives, and I suspect that a lot of these narratives around onshoring go away the more time passes. But what has China been doing to maybe counter some of those concerns that companies are going to be leaving them and manufacturing elsewhere? I mean, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. If everyone's talking about it, there's, there, there probably means on the back end they've got to be acting on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, so so there's a lot of talk about reshoring and friendshoring, and you know, the action side of it. There's recently been media coverage to suggest that perhaps it's really beginning to pick up. Obviously, this is ultimately something that needs to be seen quantitatively. That you know, how many companies doing what are actually moving and where are they going and that sort of thing. So but the first part I think of this is, you know, how much onshoring, excuse me, how much leaving China. So let's not even call it onshoring because onshoring is a whole different thing. Probably very difficult to accomplish anytime in the short run. But how many companies working in what sectors are, can realistically relocate out of China? That's the first thing. So sure, you could potentially move parts of your supply chain or production if you are in tech manufacturing or if you are somewhere in the pharmaceutical supply chain, whether it's drugs or medical equipment, maybe you can, you know, maybe you say, look, there's a, you know, there's factories in Vietnam, which could potentially do part of this work for us. So let's move it out there. Um, let's get some redundancy, maybe even into the system. There is maybe a factory in India that can potentially do this work. Let's see if we can move out. So those things are happening. They're continuing to happen. The China plus one thing. I assume is going to happen. It's also increasingly seen in the corporate interest to not have everything dependent, you know, to not have all your production being done exclusively in China. There's a policy head, there's a policy influence to it. There's no doubt. But I think in the aftermath of zero COVID and the risk of rising geopolitical tensions and themselves creating a problem is certainly creating this impetus for having a China plus one strategy. That's going on. But I, you know, I think again, the, Chinese government's reaction to this, I don't know if there needs to be a big policy push right right of the bat because I remain very skeptical, maybe perhaps and that's what you also suggested, in terms of just how big this can get and how big of a threat this can be. Number two, let's keep in mind that the goal, I think if there is a goal, and there is one from an international ambition standpoint, it's to rise up in that value chain, the global value chain as far as tech manufacturing is concerned, right? So what industries do they want to make sure, you know, you don't see this, whole, you don't get a wholesale departure and where does it matter less? I think those, that question makes, will make a big difference. So I think this is, you know, again, let's wait and see how this, how this shapes up because I can, you know, I think it's very clear that everything that has happened as far as foreign firms are concerned in recent months, you know, whereas the whole idea was that a red carpet is being rolled out for foreign executives. And of course, many Americans and others, um, obviously, Jimmy Diamond and Elon Musk got a lot of attention. But, you know, other other executives have also been making their way out there to China. Uh, there is a big impetus, but, but or that big push to welcome folks back in after zero COVID. But at the same time, we've seen what has happened, right? Companies being raided and and then shut down and people being arrested and all that. So clearly, you're not it's not a very straightforward picture of uh, foreign businesses being given reassurances, and that's the only thing. It's a more complicated picture out there right now. Okay, so that's true. Okay, so speaking about, about a, a more complicated picture, and again, maybe questioning narratives, that, that term geopolitical tensions with China, 
that phrase is thrown out a hell of a lot. How real is that, or rather how accelerated is that, if at all? I have to assume it's also, as is the case with politics in every country, a degree of show. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, I think uh, there absolutely is. So I think it's important to distinguish between, you know, who wants, so so what are the different governing parts of the, so let's talk about the U.S. What are the different governing bodies? Who wants what? And then what are they being able to accomplish? So let's get, let me make that more concrete. You've got Congress. Congress is most certainly, I think there's a bipartisan consensus among, you know, most folks in Congress that at least, that China is a, at the very least, a strategic competitor. Folks, others will tell you that no, they're an outright rival. And that we need to have a wholesale rethink of US-China policy and a reset of the relationship, right? We need to get our, get China out of our supply chains. We need to make sure that American money is not being invested in companies that are helping the PLA advance or are helping the Chinese state, you know, become capable of taking us over. And of course, there needs to be also that decoupling in the technological sphere. And many different senators and, and, and Congress uh, people are obviously pushing all sorts of legislation to make that happen. We're v- well aware of the fact that we have the select committee in the House focused on competition with the CCP, which while it does not have legislative uh, powers, any jurisdiction on its own, has been structured in a manner where people who serve on that committee can then advance legislation through their own committees, which do have, you know, sort of that legislative control or power jurisdiction, if you will. So, so you've got all of that going on. Congress is much more quote unquote hawkish. And I assume it will not only remain this way, but only continue to grow and expand. On the other hand, you've got the White House and the current administration, which has ushered in a few policies. But, you know, if you look at its export control policy, for example, which got a lot of attention, not only do you have commerce giving out exemptions and licenses to companies to continue supplying technology to China or continue operating in China, these are companies that are in the semiconductor manufacturing space, but you have an extension of that going on. A lot of the rules and regulations around the export controls that had been ushered in through the executive order have not even been written. There is increasingly rumor that policy isn't really headed anywhere. And at the same time, you have the administration now increasingly wanting to talk about a thaw in relations. So much more mixed, right? So much more mixed compared to what Congress is wanting to accomplish. We'll see where it goes, but I don't think we're getting anything more on the China front in terms of aggressive action out of the current administration. So you're absolutely right that, you know, there's a lot of talk and on the ground, the picture is a lot more convoluted. And it really depends, and it really depends on which part of the U.S. government you're currently talking about, because there isn't any type of wholesale, you know, unified front and unified action. As a matter of fact, I would say today the administration and Congress are probably moving 
in opposite directions a little bit, if anything. Just to reset the ruby for the remaining beds here, please everybody make sure you follow uh, Shazad here on Twitter. And if you're interested in learning more about China Beige Book, I encourage you to uh, check out China Beige Book as well. A phenomenal resource for better ways of getting an understanding of where the Chinese economy is going. Again, this will be on all your favorite platforms under Lead Lag Live. And if any of you want to come up and ask questions, feel free to click that bottom left mic request button. What about other relationships on the geopolitical front? I mean, everyone always talks about China and the U.S. or China and Russia. I have to assume there might be some interesting dynamics also happening between China and India, given that there seems to be a lot of belief that India is really going to overtake everything. Yeah, I think, you know, on on that front, you know, this goes back to kind of the, you know, if you can approach it from the policy mindset. There has been obviously no doubt going back all the way to when President Bush, as in George W. Bush, was around, uh, you know, this idea that India is going to be, you know, India, India is a country with which to have a strong relationship and alliance because that's going to help us be, you know, counterweight China. And of course, the latest iteration of that line of thinking is that India is a great contender to be the country that, you know, where we can shift supply chains to. You know, if not today, eventually. And so so that continues. But of course, the whole policy is complicated by the fact that whereas India is very eager to attract foreign investment with the whole Make in India campaign and so forth, you know, there are all sorts of problems ranging from capacity to infrastructure to rules and regulations under which that, that is, is going to be a lot harder to accomplish than it sounds. So case in point is there are some cancer drugs out there right now, which there is a massive shortage in the market. And that drug was being produced in a factory in India, which, of course, did not pass some of the inspections, had to be shut down in February and has therefore led to a drug shortage. And now what's happening is that the FDA has had to go to a Chinese pharmaceutical uh, company, which is not approved by the FDA, is not on that list, but nevertheless is now relying on that company to provide us the drugs. So that's actually kind of ironic in, in so many ways that goes on to showcase just how complicated these policies can be when you look to alter supply chain after, quite frankly, having spent 20 years of completely ignoring <laughs> supply chain and even undermining the, some of the basic stuff, you know, why you don't want too much concentration in any industry and, you know, and having kind of not paid any attention to the ills of what's gone on with massive monopolies that have popped up and how they've kind of resulted in single source suppliers and inevitably made China seem today as a strategic rival also the country on which we depend for almost every critical good or every critical supply. And you, can, you can't just wholesale change it to another country and expect that it will work overnight. So the policy on the ground is working is, is not exactly working out according to what you hear in press releases and press conferences and so forth. I'm curious if there's anything in the, um, and we'll get into the, some of the mechanics of the China Beige book and the survey itself, but is there anything that, that and there's no way to really test this, but in the responses that would make you think that China is closer to uh, going into Taiwan than not. Meaning, is there anything in the on the economic side that would be maybe showing the whites of the eyes if indeed they want to take that action that it's imminent? Yeah, I often have this conversation, especially you know when I'm in D.C. and there is a thinking that look, uh, when if the Chinese economy continues to weaken and struggle, that Beijing may pull sort of what's seen as a classic card across the world that. To distract from problems at home, you act on, you know, you invade a foreign country or you create, you ratchet up tensions with an enemy 
or so forth so that people don't focus on the fact that you are failing at governance um, and providing people with basic services and jobs and all that kind of stuff. On China, you know, uh, as I think you've probably heard Leland say this before on your podcast and elsewhere. And, you know, I subscribe to obviously that same view that with what with the China that we're dealing with today, the, you know, Secretary Xi being in as much control as he is in China, this policy is very much driven by what he wants to accomplish politically. That this may not be a case where we can have, where we can kind of think about the Chinese economy's condition and whether they're good or bad and see if there's an impetus there. So that if, especially if that things are struggling, that would be an impetus to move into Taiwan. I think I, I doubt that there is a, uh, you know, fully thought out timeline in Secretary Xi's mind um, today. But what happens is really going to be dependent on his personal political priorities, his personal whims to an extent. And it will be harder to gauge, you know, I think it will be probably, this whole thing is a lot harder to gauge than we typically think about it. You know, I, I don't want to make too many comparisons by virtue of not being a Russia expert or a Ukraine expert or knowing that much about that part of the world. But, you know, it's sort of like how folks were trying to guess what was going to happen in that invasion. And the consensus was that there's no way Putin would invade Ukraine because that would be irrational. This would be this and that. But ultimately, you know, what really just boiled down to what was in Putin's mind and what he wanted to get done. And I think not enough credit is given to the fact that this may be a decision that is almost singularly made by and ordered by President Xi. And getting inside any president's brain is, you know, obviously impossible to do. But does that mean that, you know, it goes back to that question you keep hearing uh, repeatedly, this idea that, you know, is China investable or not? I mean, if there's a if there's a degree of unknown volatility because it's all being driven by one person's mindset, how can you be comfortable, you know, taking any kind of bet on investing in China? Yeah, I think so it boils down to, you know, so, so that's where you have to do some of the guesswork. And, you know, you have to wonder, you know, where are we? How long, you know, how long are you looking to expose yourself for? Because I think, you know, if you look at, you know, the condition, the situation today, I think you can be reasonably sure that and nothing on their screen suggests that there is a Taiwan invasion waiting to happen next month in three or three months or four months, right? So you can do things like that, of course. When we think about when will it happen, it's hard to sit here today in 2023 and say, well, I believe it will happen, you know, in March of 2027. Are the odds of it happening in March 2027 higher than they are in March of 24? If I had to make a bet, I would say yes, absolutely. So it, you have to kind of, you know, that it boils down to some of that, by the way, you know, so, so that's the larger picture with which to, with which I think to maybe try to game out some of this if you are investing in Chinese companies. Now, let's, let's keep in mind that actually several major American financial institutions are only looking to deepen their presence in China. Obviously, we have, you know, a multitude of major American companies and smaller American companies that are in China and they have, you know, they plan to stay there. So I think the business community, certainly well aware of the Taiwan risk and worried about it, probably to an extent, you know, has convinced themselves that they could undertake actions to be <laughs> deter or delay some of that. But clearly I seem to have, you know, you say, look, we're going to be here and we're going to stay here and ultimately we'll work around the geopolitical risks, right? Otherwise you would have seen everybody getting up and 
trying to run away, given how much attention the Taiwan invasion stuff's been getting over the last couple of years. Talk about the way that um, you have put together the China Beige Book and the types of survey questions. First of all, outline for the audience, what's the actual process and how has it evolved over time? Yeah, so, you know, we've, what we do in China is survey about just around about 4,600 companies in any given quarter. So, you know, the monthly surveys, you're talking over 1,500 companies. We cover every major sector of the Chinese economy. So manufacturing, retail, services, the property market, both in, on the construction side, as well as on the realtor, broker, or aging, that kind of thing, or, uh, you know, bro- brokerages and so forth. And that part of the, the property market, both commercial and residential, we also have a huge focus on the transportation construction components of the economy in order to gauge where fiscal stimulus is and, you know, and what fiscal projects are being taken being undertaken. We have a proprietary fiscal stimulus or fiscal activity gauge that we that oftentimes will, you know, show some results from publicly also. We have a big commodities focus, copper, steel, coal, and aluminum, and even a small farming component. The beauty of what we do is I, I you know, uh, not to bore the audience too much, <laughs> but the beauty of what we do is have a blended approach. So whereas you have state PMIs, for example, that come out, which are, you know, largely weighted towards big state-owned enterprises. You have the private PMI, which is almost exclusively weighted towards uh, smaller firms, mostly private firms, but definitely firms in the coastal parts of China. What we said is, look, we want to have the most comprehensive tracking of the Chinese economy down. We want state firms and private firms. We want large firms and SMEs. We want to survey not just every sector of the economy, but every part of the economy geographically across the country. So what you get from China Beige Book is this very in-depth, granular look at what's happening um, and this very comprehensive picture, which no single data source out there, you know, any other private data that you come up here and there, have the ability to provide. And, and you find that the accuracy of the responses has a degree of variability by industry or is it pretty constant across the board. The accuracy, having done this, we've been doing this for 12 years. So we've been around for a while and going that, you know, you get that across the board because one of the things, and I always say this in my closed sessions with either clients or other, or, you know, other folks at the investing committee, the thing to always remember when it comes to data collection is that a lot of the challenges with accuracy begin with you. Right. If you don't know how to go out there and ask the right questions and the correct framing, if you don't know how to correctly sample and, you know, and if you don't know the technicalities of the work, then you are building in inaccuracy into your data from the beginning. If you can take care of a lot of those, if you have good ways to flag, you know, inaccurate responses, if you have good mechanism to pick out people who are, you know, giving you fraudulent answers, incorrect answers and so forth. You know, yes, having done this over a decade, we have some proprietary things that we've, you know, learned and done. We've spent a lot of time testing and pre-testing. We do a lot of R&D work internally to, you know, to learn the right lessons so, so that we can continue to improve our data collection. But a lot of the inaccuracy issues are actually taken care of at that stage. That's more of a sort of a, a bit of a wonky point, but one thing that's important to understand. Beyond that, our track record, as you know, is out in the public put our views out in the public and we've been doing so for a decade, you know, it's on the basis of that data and the accuracy of that data that we've 
ahead of the curve so often on on almost every major twist and turn in the Chinese economy over the last decade. I want to talk about how China as just kind of a global growth engine for a bit, because I think this is where it gets to be interesting with your point about you know, the second half, you know, some kind of maybe reacceleration, as you mentioned earlier. There, There is a narrative that's out there, which is that, you know, China can drive all economies higher, right, if they are the strongest economically for a moment of time in their cycle. How has the effect of China's growth on global economies, how has that changed? Is it is the same as it was 10 years ago? Is there less impact on other economies? I reference that because I had Louis Vincent Gobb on a Twitter space. And you know, earlier in the year, he was pretty adamant that we're not going to have a recession in the U.S. because he thought that China would keep us away from that with their own reacceleration. Well, so, you know, I think a lot of the idea of China as a global growth driver. So, you know, America, just think about our engagement with the world. Like we're, we're consumers, you know, we consume things that we buy from the world. We consume things. There's a reason why we have a, our trade balance is always negative with several major economies and so forth, right? China, on the other hand, China largely is a consumer, not of services, predominantly of commodities. And then us other manufactured or capital goods products for like machines that, you know, machines for tools manufacturing that come in from Japan or input goods for furniture, input materials and supplies for things like furniture from Italy and so forth. So, so it's those sorts of things. And yes, of course, if Chinese fact, the factory side of the economy, the manufacturing side of the economy is doing well. And of course, you know, when we say commodities, oil obviously is up there. It's, it's huge. Yes, that will be have a very positive spillover effect in the global economy. If the Chinese property market were to see better days ahead and there were to be more, con, you know, some more construction than there has been over the last couple of years, even though we're not at levels we used to be, that can have a positive spillover effect. So in those instances, in those areas, yes. But beyond that, it's not, you know, China is not a net services consumer, obviously. You know, it's so... That part of the picture is very muddied. So the whole idea of China as a global growth driver is true, but it's true in the very traditional sense of the industrial side of the Chinese economy powering, you know, powering the global economy. You know, Chinese, you know, so, so, so that's very important. The other side of it, and again, it's narrow. If you want to talk about the consumer side, sure. If there's a lot of spending on, uh, you know, luxury goods, that will have a positive spillover effect on particular companies, uh, not necessarily countries. If you have a lot of eventually, you know, Chinese tourists going back into European capitals or even visiting here, that certainly will have a big impact on the tourism industry, especially again, it's very important for countries like Italy or France or so forth. But we're not getting that this year. That doesn't seem very likely. Some Asian countries might get it. So I think it's very important to be specific here because it's not, you know, the U.S. is not obviously the uh, the right example with which we want to see China. Not that I think Louis Gavin was saying that, but, you know, I always want to be careful about how we think of China because there's endless newspaper headlines either saying that the global economy, you know, China is going to drive the global economy, you know, in, in, uh, into acceleration and or that you know, the global economy is not going to do well simply because of China. And, you know, we need to be careful about how we think about that and what we mean by that. I wonder how you think China's, growth would interact with what we're seeing out of Japan more recently, right? Which looks like, oddly enough, it's, it may actually be highly breaking out of a, of a three-decade type of equity, relative bear market, I'd argue. But any thoughts on how China's economic activity is maybe altering dynamics in Asia more broadly? Okay, I think, you know, this year, 
So, so, so let's just focus on, on, on this year for a second, because I continue to think that this is probably a bit of an outlier year. And even though everybody is incredibly downbeat on China today, this, that viewpoint most likely will be different by, you know, and it will begin to change the second half of the year, uh, you know, and we'll probably get a much more, by comparison, more positive views on, on, on where the country is and where the economy is. By the time we get into the fall and late summer and so forth, that's bad to take a guess. That's not, this year is going to be an outlier. You're, you're going to get, you know, China, I continue to believe, definitely hitting their GDP growth target. I always thought that the iBank growth targets of six, six and a half, and I think one bank even said 7% were absolutely nutty. And that was never going to happen. And everybody's beginning to revise that down anyway. But nevertheless, I think you get a positive story out of at the end of the day, at the end of the year, you'll get a positive China story this year. That is not going to be true, I think, in, in, in the next few years ahead of us. Uh, it's probably not going to be true next year or the year after. And then, you know, as we get into this large down, downshifting in, you know, in, in economic growth in China, we have, you know, slow. Uh, one thing that's almost guaranteed is that the Chinese economy is going to grow at a much slower pace in years ahead. And that's where the Japan comparisons come in. But, you know, we, that's the kind of China contribution to the regional economy we're looking at. And that, of course, has very serious implications for China's trading partners within the region, whether it be Korea, uh, whether it be Japan itself, and so forth. So that's kind of that's the perspective or, and the lens with which I would urge folks to think about this. For those who want to learn more about China Beige Book and the kind of work that you and Leland put out, where do they turn to? Yeah, well, you know, we're on Twitter. So the best place to follow what are some of our publicly released views are and our ongoing commentary, you know, on, on a daily, weekly basis is our Twitter account. It's at China Beige Book. And you've got my Twitter account. It's my first name, Shazad, middle initial age and last name, Kazi, Q-A-Z-I. So you should certainly follow us on Twitter. Beyond that, you know, give our website a visit. It's www.chinabeigebook.com. You'll get a great sense of what data we collect, what the various analytical products are that we put out. And it's also a great place, a single stop shop to take a look at a lot of the media that we've done, you know, between the TV interviews, the written articles and radio and so forth. So if you want to get a good sense of what it is that we've been saying and what it is that we've been seeing, the website will provide you a lot of that. And otherwise, reach out if you want to discuss having a, a subscription access for to CBB. So yeah, good place to wrap this Twitter space up, everybody. Please make sure you follow Shazad here on Twitter. Thank you, Shazad. Appreciate it. Hey, this is great. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.